If you don't know me, my name's Peter. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. Um, well, this morning uh, we're going to look at anxiety. Uh, it's kind of a one-off, and the reason why it's kind of a one-off is because there's a workshop next Sunday night uh, from 7 o'clock here uh, up the top. So um, most probably today I'm going to raise more questions than answers for you, but I hope to give you some. Um, you just can't say everything in one sermon, and those of you who have been around and heard me talk, you kind of think he's had a crack sometimes, um, but, but you actually can't uh, say everything in one sermon, so uh, there's two options for you. One option is to come next Sunday night at 7 o'clock uh, and hear the rest, because I'm not actually going to get into heaps and heaps of practical stuff today. There will be practical stuff, but I'm not going to get into heaps of it. I just want to lay some stuff out for you so that you've got some clarity about it. Uh, the other option for you is you can text questions to that phone num number up in the right-hand corner and it will be on just about all of the, the slides today and we'll have a short Q&A at the end. Um, yeah. Well, um, what, what good timing um, for a uh, sermon on anxiety, right? Or perhaps you'd say, what bad timing? Um, the last few days have in many ways been another round of what we've all been experiencing for the last couple of years, right? Um, I've, I've been on the planet for a bit, I've got a few kilometres on the clock, and um, I, in my life I've not known such a sustained attack on personal peace and, uh, and corporate peace uh, like we've had over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, go back to 2020, you remember right at the beginning of 2020, what did we have? We had fires, we had floods, and then this virus gets discovered in Wuhan, and it gets out early in the year, and before long, it's spreading like wildfire. No one knows much about it, um, but the press gets onto it, and they push it really hard. Do you remember this? Whole news bulletins were about this virus for months, for months. Like, I remember sitting there just going, is there anything else happening in the whole world right now? Um, that was all they talked about. In fact, I did a little video blog series for a while called Another Helpful Interruption because I just felt like there was, all the traffic was just kind of heading in one direction and it needed to be interrupted. Uh, they told us there was this invisible tsunami coming for us and we needed to stay away from each other. Then the lockdown came at the end of March and we were all told to stay home. Uh, we watched on TV as, uh, and we saw the news footage of uh, unemployment lines snaking around the corners of buildings in cities in Australia. Uh, we bunkered down and we were told, you need to stay away from each other. And it wasn't just referred to as um, physical distancing, it was social distancing, right? And that, that was an interesting term for us, right? The normal supports for us in terms of relationships and people we were connected to were stripped away. We saw tragic scenes of, uh, I think it was army trucks in Italy carrying uh, corpses out of people who had died from... COVID-19. We came out of lockdown, uh, but for just about all of Australia, one wasn't enough. Um, and there were parts of Australia that had multiple lockdowns, sometimes at a moment's notice. Uh, you could be away somewhere, as, as my family was. We were away at the sunny coast, and bam, all of a sudden there's a lockdown, and you've got hours to get home, and then you had to stay home. Uh, this kind of stuff just uh, had, a, had the effect of leaving us hyper alert unable to plan things for any decent length of time. We wore masks. We had limited numbers, numbers at church when we could have it. 
We needed to separate from each other. Great hope was the vaccine, right? Uh, and so all the while there's these experts working on vaccines and AstraZeneca came out and it seemed good and then all of a sudden there's uh, blood clots starting to happen. The thing that was meant to help people is now harming people uh, at some level. Another delay in the rollout in Australia. Uh, then Pfizer came, but then we found out about the side effects with Pfizer. Danger and risk seem to be everywhere. Then Australians and people across the world began to get sceptical of governments. Uh, information began circulating on social media about what the government's really up to. Uh, conspiracy theories abounded about the vaccine, about coercive government control, about the weather, amongst others. In some ways, it was a pushback on the way fear was being used by the media and the government. But in reality, it just brought with it another kind of fear. All right? Fear of the government. Fear of hidden agendas. Fear that something else unseen was happening. I'm not even getting into whether that's true or not. I'm just saying this is just the reality. Society began to fracture. Close friends, and some of you know this, close friends weren't friends anymore. And that went right from the personal to, uh, to people who are coming to church. We had people who have left the church because of things that we've done here. Um, right up to nations. There are nations that are not friends anymore. There were interpersonal problems. People split off. They separated from one another. There was conflict. There was fights. There were fights. Who knows this? People, people changed. People have just changed over the last two years. And, and you probably know people, you just go, they are just not the same person that I knew a while ago. But we got through, right? And we got through. Restrictions began to lift. Mandates began to be wound back. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. And World War III was about to happen. That's what we were told. Brutal images were and are being beamed right to our phones. And in the midst of all of that, earlier this year, we had a big flood and places went underwater. We've had multiple weekends this year where authorities have told us to stay home. Don't go out. It's too dangerous to go out. And people didn't come to church. They didn't come to youth. And it's just happened again, right? It's certainly not a criticism, but Faith Life Church cancelled their service Friday night because of the weather. They had it online. People are on edge, and who can blame them? This is an article from the ABC News just this week, and this is a section from the article. The article's uh, Queensland's wet weather warnings bring fresh anxiety and stress to victims of February floods. Victims of the devastating February floods in southeast Queensland say the latest severe rain event has triggered trauma. And who could reverse the little progress made in cleanup? Sorry, and could reverse the little progress made in cleanup efforts? She said the latest heavy rainfall has her on edge and unable to sleep, fearful she'll have to flee her home again. Folks, this is the greenhouse that we've been in for the last two years. And you know what? I haven't even addressed what's been going on in your life. Right? We haven't even talked about that. You know, we, many of you have had things happening which have added significantly to this toll. 
And I want to say to you this morning, you can be excused for having more of a running battle with anxiety than you have had in the past. <laughs> I've had more of a running battle with anxiety than I've had in the past. When we went into lockdown the first time, when you're a pastor and you love people and you want to care for them and you're, you want to be amongst people, going into lockdown was like the worst thing. And so many times I just felt myself going, I did not sign up for this. All of you, and this is not a criticism, but this is just the experience for me, all of you disappeared into the ether. We messaged people, we called people, and everyone disappeared. And so you get, for me, it was a little bit like in Philippians, I think it is, where Paul talks about how people had a concern, but they didn't have an opportunity to express it. There's something difficult about having a concern for someone, a heart for someone, and not being able to express it. And some of you know what I'm talking about. What am I saying? I'm just saying the context that we've been in for the last little bit has been conducive to a running battle with anxiety. Here's where we're going to head today. Six points today, but we're going to skip through some really quickly. I want to start by defining fear and anxiety. Second thing we're going to look at is the experience of anxiety. Third thing is how we typically respond to anxiety. Anxiety and anthropology. Anthropology is just the way that people have been made. A critical malfunction and reorienting the anxious. There's heaps of things I could say today. I don't consider myself to be an anxiety expert, but I know a few things and I'm going to share those uh, with you today. Uh, I want to give you some broad brush strokes to orient you so that when we do some stuff that's practical next Sunday night, it will, it will make sense for you. Let's um, start with the first one. Defining fear and anxiety. Have a look on the left there. Here's just a classic definition of fear. Fear, a bodily emotional response to danger or a threat. Okay, let me give you a classic example. Sondergelds get home in the car and we walk into the house in two pods. We don't normally do that, but on this particular day we did. Half went in and the other half came in about 30 seconds later. But before that other half came in, uh, I was in the first pod. We kind of got inside, unlocked the door, dumped some stuff on the bench, and then all of a sudden there's this mad person screaming on the driveway, right? Just going, who on earth is that? And, and I kind of go out and look through the window in the study, and it's Ange, right? Because we left the front door open, and a five-foot eastern brown has just slithered across our front door, right? That's, that's fear, all right? That's fear. It's like... She's seen something. Now, I was, I was too slow to respond, right? But part of the reason I was slower to respond is because I didn't see the snake. By the time I got out there, the snake was gone. So if, I don't know what it is. It's our first or second most venom, venomous snake in the world, the eastern brown. That, that's all we get at our house, and we get quite a few of them. We usually uh, move them. <laughs> we do. We do. So you've got to get the idea here that a fear is about something that's, that's real and present. You can actually see it. Anxiety, on the other hand, if you look at the right-hand side of that screen there, anxiety is a state of mind or heart and body governed or controlled by the fear of a possible negative outcome in the future. Okay? So we kind of use fear and anxiety interchangeably. Right? But strictly speaking, I think it's helpful to have a distinction between the two. So fear is where there's a... There's a concrete, visible danger in front of you. Anxiety is not. Anxiety is... Now, you might say there's a very high likelihood it could happen, and I'd say, yes, there is, but it's not actually there 
at that point in time. It's a possible outcome, okay? Um, anxiety isn't reliant upon the actual presence of some danger, only the possibility of danger. And what fear and anxiety do is they have a way of getting us ready physically to engage with what's going on right in front of us, all right? The difference with anxiety is that the things that we're fearful about in anxiety aren't actually in front of us and they may not actually happen. So there's a sense in which anxiety is getting us ready to go for something that may not actually happen. And here's what I want to say to you. If you have struggled with anxiety, and uh, just, I'll just declare my hand, you all do. Okay? I think that you all do. Right? So if, we'll get to this in a minute, but if you sit there and you go, I don't think I struggle with anxiety, you're not living in a fallen world. And all of you are living in a fallen world. And this is why fear and anxiety make some sense. Right? Because the world's fallen and bad things happen. They just do. Some people get anxious about flying in planes. Not skydiving. Flying in planes, right? Now, planes don't bother me that much. Um, But, you know, if you are nervous, which is another word for anxiety, if you're anxious about flying in planes, right, who knows it doesn't matter how many times you say that it's safer to go on a plane than drive on the road. Who's heard that one? Does it help? Doesn't help, right? Why? Because planes crash. I'm sorry to to wreck that for you, (laughs) right? But that's the truth, right? Planes actually do crash. Now, I I don't have a major problem, anxiety thing with flying, but I'll tell you something that... I get anxious about that when I'm on a plane, especially between here and America, there's a lot of water, right, underneath. And um, that's really deep water. And there's big waves and lots of sharks, right? And I don't, I don't mean to stir you up if you've got a problem with flying, but that's, that's a struggle for me, right? And I actually found out this week, you know what the collective noun for a group of sharks is? It's not a school. It's actually a shiver of sharks. I was going, that is exactly right. (laughs) But here's the thing. When I'm in a plane over water, right, it actually isn't a fear because there's not something that's actually right in front of me that's happening. It's actually anxiety at that point in time. And this is where it can get really difficult and tricky. And I'm not going to go into this in this sermon because this is another 35 sermons, right? But there is a link between traumatic, fearful experiences that you've been in before and running with anxiety in the present, okay? We can, we can get triggered by stuff. Um, and there's a, um, there's a really interesting book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score where the guy argues, he's a secular, um, a secular researcher, argues that there's the stress and the anxiety that happens to us can actually build up in our bodies, uh, it can get stored up in there. And I think that's consistent with uh, what Scripture teaches about the fact that we're embodied souls. Uh, but I want to say this. Um, in basic terms, all right, fear is mostly helpful. Anxiety is almost never helpful. Okay? 
Fear, fear is mostly helpful. Anxiety is almost never helpful. Fear readies you for action. Anxiety seems to get you ready for something which may not, and let's be honest, often doesn't actually happen. It has happened sometimes. Number three, the experience of anxiety. Uh, this one should be a little, a little quicker. And read through the ones on the screen. This is, uh, and a bunch of these have come from Beyond Blue, uh, one of the leading organisations in Australia that speak to this kind of stuff. What's anxiety like? Well, it's like fast breathing, uh, racing thoughts. Wonder if any you can tick any of these. Tight chest, uh, heart beating faster. You walk into a room and you, there's just illies in you. Hot and cold, confusing flushes, obsessing about things, snowballing worries which feel like they will bury you, an unrelenting voice which keeps on asking, but what if that? And what if that? What if that happened? And what if this happened? Stress, nervousness, worry, feeling tense, Anger, you might go, how's that? Anxiety, well, um, that's one typical response to it. According to Beyond Blue, anxiety is the most common mental health condition in Australia. They, um, they suggest that one in four people uh, suffer with it. And what's interesting is that they're only talking about anxiety, which is a disorder, right? Now, uh, back in 2011, a guy called Richard McNally, who's uh, a guru in, um, in Harvard's psychology and psychiatry, wrote a book, and part of his, um, part of his book was really about the fact that uh, there's... It's a longer story, but he's, he was arguing, and his, his point is that uh, psychological diagnoses are over-diagnosed and that we should diagnose them a bit less. Uh, he's an expert. And one of the things that he said, which I think is very consistent with what we'd, we'd see in scripture, is that all anxiety lies on a continuum from non-disorder to disorder. So what, what that tells you is that there's a similar kind of DNA in terms of anxiety that runs in all anxiety from the garden variety stuff right up to the really, really hard things. Um, now, you have to draw a line on that continuum somewhere where you decide that something's not a disorder and something is a disorder, okay? Uh, and that, that is the task of uh, mental health um, professionals, is to work out when does it become a disorder. And the typical kind of shorthand way to actually say that is when something really begins to affect your life adversely, that would be the line where we draw a line and all of a sudden we're talking about disorder on the other side of that, all right? But let me um, let let please don't take this next thing I'm going to say the wrong way. According to Scripture, all anxiety is a disorder. Okay, and let, just let me explain it. Okay, um, but I want you to hear this. Right? We don't. According to Scripture, there's not a part of anxiety that's fine, and then a part of it that's problematic. Scripture, I think, teaches that all anxiety is problematic. 
God's goal for you, right? I want you to hear me on this. God's goal for you is to not have any anxiety. Do you hear that? His goal for you is to not have any anxiety at all. Zip. Do you think that's a good goal? <laughs> and I, I don't want you to hear this. The reason why I'm a little nervous about saying this is because I think some of you are going to hear it like it's a command, that you just have to stop it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this is an objective, this is a goal, and this is the goal that God has, that you would be able to live in a fallen world and not be anxious. You up for that? Yep. Man, you just... It's a bit lame, really, but... Uh, don't want you to be anxious about that. Um, I love the idea of living in a fallen world and not being anxious. Well, how, how do we typically respond to anxiety? If you track back to, the, um, to fear that we talked about before, what's the normal human response to danger or threat? All right? well, the normal human response is the emotions in the body get ready to deal with it. Another way to put it, is we get ready to manage and control the danger or the threat. I use the word control. It's often used in a negative way, but I'm just using it in a positive way, actually, at this point. All right? Um, this is kind of how it operates. We, uh, we get activated. We want to control and manage the threat. Um, this is kind of how it works with fear and anxiety. Uh, you're compelled to do something about it rather than just let some bad thing come at you and hit you. That's kind of how it works. Even avoiding it is doing something about it, right? And I want to ask the question, uh, does this fit the way that we've been made to operate? And I want to suggest to you this morning, it totally fits the way that we've been made to operate. And I want to show you the connection between how you and I respond to fear and how we've been made. And so the, the category for this is actually anthropology. Let's have a quick look at anxiety and anthropology. First two verses of the Bible say this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, right? And so what I want to do is this, this idea here of the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. I just want to give you a little bit more background information. Without form um, in the Hebrew means waste, nothingness. Chaos. Void is about emptiness characterised by a lack of order. If you keep going on in this verse, what do you get to? The next bit you get to is darkness. And you think about that through the rest of the scriptures. God is light. Whenever you read about darkness, you're reading about something that's kind of opposed to who God is. All right, And then you get to the face of the deep and whilst there's times in the scriptures where waters are life-giving, uh, the, the view in, in other parts of the scriptures is that the, the, uh, the deep, the ocean, is just this unruly, untamed thing. Uh, Gordon Wenham, um, a Genesis commentator, makes this comment. This frightening disorganisation is the antithesis to the order that characterised the work of creation when it was complete. Right? Wenham talks about frightening disorganisation and that's what Genesis 1 verse 2 is talking about. So what does God do? Well, God exercises his dominion over frightening disorganisation 
And you see over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. It's amazing. Good and order comes because he engages with it. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we see this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have what? Dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what, part of the reality of us as image bearers is that we have been called to rule on behalf of God under God. God's made us to be people that would kind of be, I hesitate to say this because there's a bad movie connotation, but mini-me, right? Mini-me. So what, what you see in Genesis chapter 1 is there's this frightening disorganisation in the world. God exercises his dominion over it. He brings about order and goodness. Then he creates humanity and he says, you go and do a little bit of what I've done. When you see frightening disorganisation... Take dominion over it. Bring about order. Bring about goodness, just as God did. So there's something about us, right, that when we see chaos and disorder and darkness, we're actually meant to engage it and bring about goodness. You go into uh, Genesis chapter 2, you think about Genesis 1 is kind of Hollywood, uh, blockbuster, God just speaks and things happen. Genesis 2 is God's getting a lot closer. It's kind of a rerun. Of, um, of the creation account, but with uh, the lens kind of zoomed in uh, so that we can see things happening in a little bit more detail. And we actually uh, see this in Genesis chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Now, I think the writer is wanting you to go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. Formless and void. You see that? I, I, think the, I think the author's flagging as a connection there. There was no man to work the ground. Uh, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I, it's, it's kind of another rerun, right? Can you see that? What does God do? What does God do when he creates this garden in the east of Eden? He takes the man and he puts him in the garden. This is verse 15 there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. All right? Literally, this means to till and to guard it. What's he supposed to be doing? He's supposed to be bringing about order and goodness. That's what he's supposed to be doing. But not just that, he's actually meant to protect it. Now, this is a whole another sermon, at least one, but, uh, and a longer argument. But I actually think Adam's job was to expand the garden in the rest of the world, to grow it. That's what I think it was. Um, to engage with the, uh, the disorder and the disorganisation outside of the garden and bring it under control, to subdue it. Um, so I'm going to show you a graphic and I, I drew this one and you'll go, Pete, there's probably some more gifted people in the church that can draw a graphic, but I'll put it up for you and it, it will just graphically represent what I'm talking about this morning. Here we go. All right. 
God has dominion. I'll start from the top down. God has dominion over everything. Complete and utter dominion over all things. Okay? Underneath that, God has actually given, created humanity and said, I want you to have dominion over things, but it's not as big as God's dominion over things. All right? It, it isn't as powerful and it isn't everywhere. So you can see the circle of um, dominion around us kind of tracks, by and large, our dominion tracks with wherever we are actually physically present. Okay? That's where it tracks. Now, God's physically present everywhere. Sorry, God's present everywhere. Um, and he has authority and power over all things. We don't control all things like God does, but he has given us some authority and power to do some stuff. All right? Now... If you have a look at that model, in the original model, before any fallenness comes in, right, humanity does not have ultimate dominion over all things. We have a piece of it, right? And so in this model at the very beginning, there were things that were outside of human control. Is everyone okay with that? There were things that were outside of human control. And, and hear me on this, but it was okay. Now, some of you go, I know why it was okay, Pete, because it wasn't a fallen world and bad things weren't happening, right? But that's actually not the reason why I'm saying it was okay. The reason why it was okay was because God is good and whatever fell outside the dominion of the person, it was okay. Because God had dominion over it, all right? There was always going to be things outside of humanity's control in the very beginning, but it wasn't a problem because there was a dynamic, ongoing partnership between humanity and God where he would oversee everything and he would give us little things to do, little jobs to do. All right, number five. There is so much to say. If you think, Pete, you boil it down, it's a bit too simple and you're not cashing out all the nuances, it's because I like lunch and uh, dinner and I'm keen to have lunch and dinner today. All right? And we could be here for a long, long time. A critical malfunction. Now, some of you probably can see where I'm going. God has made you and me to engage with chaos, disorder and darkness. All right? before sin came into the world. That's, that's how he's made us. We have been made to guard. We've been made to guard. And I think the fear response can be a helpful expression of it. Right? Can be. And the old line is that in the presence of something threatening, people fight, flight or freeze. Right? That's the old line. It's a pretty good description, I think. Uh, so I'm, I'm not saying that all responses to fear are helpful. Okay, but I think the fear kind of response within us is, is mostly helpful. Um, anxiety, on the other hand, um, well, that seems to be a disordering of things. Um, and let me show you what anxiety does using the same diagram as before, but with a dirty big red arrow. Do you know... Do you know, uh, one of the key things that anxiety actually does is it pushes us out from under God's dominion, right? 
and we end up in a fallen, scary world where we can't control everything. We begin to believe we are the only ones who can look after the danger. At least we're the only ones who can do what ought to be done with the situation. Anxiety has a way of making us central in bringing about good and order and sidelining God. You know, for honest, there's a bunch of us who know this, that there are times where we grab control in our anxious state because we don't think that God's going to make things go the way that we think he should make them go. <laughs> and it has to go the way that we want it to go. You know, other times there's something which we love and we love it more than anything else and it gets threatened, so we get to work. We meditate, right? And I'm going to... This is a... Anxiety is a, med- is a meditation. If we have time to get to that in a minute. What do we do? We meditate and ruminate on so many possibilities. We end up with plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so on. Because the more you head in this direction that you can see on the screen there, the more you want to control, the more there is to control. (laughs) And we end up alone. We step out from under the dominion of God. We step out from under partnering with him and sitting under his covering and we do it ourselves. And we get tired. He knows what I'm talking about. We just get tired because the job's too big. There are too many things to control. There are too many variables. What are we to do? Well, it's easy to say this, but this is one of the key things we need to do. We need to come back under the Lord's dominion again where we can operate in partnership with him under his covering, do our part, and trust him with the rest. Right? Now, please hear me. That's not a method for managing your anxiety. That's the truth that sits in behind what I'm talking about. So going up and just telling someone something like that, expecting that it's going to get the job done, there's a lot more help in Scripture for that, but you need to come back next week. All right? What does it look like? Well, I'm just going to read you a... um, a a quick scripture and it's an uncanny one probably it's probably not one that you've ever gone to to think about how to manage anxiety before but it's interesting it's very very interesting it's in Luke chapter 21 I'll put it on the screen in a minute and it's Jesus telling the disciples all these bad things that are going to happen to them right to the point of death okay let's read then he said to them Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And it gets real personal. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Now, 
Jesus was pretty clear about not worrying, right? And it's like, you are just not helping us, right? Don't be telling us all that sort of stuff, all right? Just say, stuff's going to happen, right? But he actually goes into detail. You think if you were the disciples, it's like, okay, you've just given me some really fertile material to ruminate on, to meditate on. Look at the next thing that Jesus actually says. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. This is interesting, isn't it? Now, if you check out verse 14 in other translations, uh, they actually, instead of using the word meditate, they use the word worry. Right? So what, what's anxiety? Anxiety is a worry. It's a meditation about what am I going to do if I get in that situation. What's the alternative? Verse 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I wonder how you'd summarise it. Here's how I'd summarise it. Don't meditate about what you're going to do and work out plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Trust me, I will help you. That's really what he's saying. Trust me. I will help you. And that is the center, the center of dealing with anxiety. It's a trust battle. I'm going to go on, verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents. It's like, stop. Okay, we get the point, all right? By parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Isn't that weird? Go back to verse 16. What's, what is he talking about? About not a hair of your head will perish if some people are going to be put to death. He's talking about you, the real you, the real disciples, not the physical experience in a sense. God promises that he will protect you and you'll make it even if it means your body dies. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Where do we want to head with anxiety? Um, we want to head in the direction of trust. And uh, I just want you to know, everyone probably has got trust issues when it comes to God. Let's just be honest about that. Um, a bit of group therapy this morning. Um, if anyone ever comes up to you and says, just trust God, Tell them they can go and tell someone else that, right? Because trusting God is never just a just thing, right? Remember years ago hearing a biblical counsellor say that if you see something repeated over and over in the scriptures, there's a good chance it's a hard thing to do, right? That's one of the things that scripture teaches over and over and over and over again is to trust God. It's a good chance it's a hard thing to do. It's easy in some places, but it's hard in others. You have to come in out of the cold and stop doing it on your own. I'm going to read you an anti-psalm. All right? This is written by David Powlison. It's actually a flip on Psalm 23, and it tells you, gives you amazing insight, I think, into the nature of um, an anxiety-driven world. 
I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. It's a playoff of Psalm 23. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me, except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. It's a sad world, right? But that is the world that anxiety pushes you into. It's the world that often we choose for ourselves. God, we... Um We thank you for what you do. We thank you for the power that exists in you, your, uh, your beautiful uh, dominion and oversight that brings about good without destroying and uh, running roughshod over the top of people. Um, we, um, we just thank you so much. We thank you that um, the prophecy in Isaiah where you said uh, to Jacob, uh, you're a worm, Jacob, but I'm going to make you a mighty threshing sledge and you'll thresh mountains, that you have big plans for us. And it's not to leave us in an anxious, worried, nervous state, but to, uh, to, to do mighty things with us. And um, we, we're excited about that. And that's really, really good and we want to walk in that. Um, but we need you to be close and we need you to constantly remind us of your presence, of your love for us, how you cover our shame and how you will be there in every single moment. Amen.